I would really be more curious about how things worked, which would involve breaking them or opening them, just so I could understand how that works and then put it back together and walk away with the knowledge of something totally different. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode we talk with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode, I had a fantastic conversation with Babusi Nioni, who is a self-taught designer and innovator. He works in the fields of artificial intelligence and big data innovation, with a particular focus on developing solutions for sub-Saharan African communities. He was born and grew up in Zimbabwe before moving to South Africa, where he worked for almost a decade in advertising, finance and technology, before relocating to the Netherlands a few years ago, where he now specialises in developing meaningful innovation by translating technology from one domain to another. So I started out by asking him how he came up with a new innovation that went from dance to diagnosis. Enjoy! Up until that point, working in advertising, I was the one to come up with a whole lot of pitches for ideas that used emerging technology. And those pitches were not always successful, primarily because a lot of the people who I pitched it to didn't understand the tech enough. And a couple of years later, I established my own digital agency whose sole purpose was to create these kinds of solutions that relied on a contextualized use of emerging technology. So you were pitching these ideas in your agency yeah, and people didn't believe that (laughs) they would work, which is obviously frustrating. Did you know they would work or did you believe they would work? So my biggest skill, you know, even up to today is my ability to learn things really quickly. So whenever new opportunities to harness existing tech would come I would basically be the first one to realize wait we could build this with this and achieve this thing why do you think you can learn stuff quickly where does that come from do you think I think it would come from my not going to university and learning everything on the job and it's something that I've it built a career around my versatility from the moment I left high school to where I am now has led me to places like working in a cyber cafe or like painting and installing the electrics in newly built houses, being a graphic designer. My work has been very varied, mainly because I've just been applying myself in every space I can, you know, squeeze into almost like an octopus. I realized in this journey that I was able to acquire information from my first job when I was 18 to now. My employers would always be super surprised at how quickly I would pick up on certain things. Do you think you've always been like that or do you think you've been forced to learn that because of all the different things you've done along the way? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the only way I can trace it back to my upbringing is 
I know for a fact that I've always been a very curious person. So I didn't come from a, a well-off family. I was, I think, around six. I went to town with my mother and we were walking in this flea market and there was a seller who had toys laid out on the floor. And one of these was this toy machine gun with like 16 sounds and strobing lights and whatnot. I, I cried enough to get my mother to get me this gun and I was overjoyed because one, I never got any brand new toys, but then also I got the thing that I wanted when I saw it and we got home that same afternoon and while my mother was in the house, I was outside with the gigantic rock smashing this gun to pieces <laughs> just to see exactly how it worked. <laughs> this toy for me, was more around how it did the things it did versus what it did. How did your mother respond? Oh, yeah. I don't know if this is safe for a podcast, but she told me to go and find the thing that I broke the toy with so she could break me with it as well. So <laughs> <laughs> she didn't do Ooh. that. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's so she dark. wasn't happy. She no, wasn't happy. she was not because she never, ever bought like brand yeah, new toys. <laughs> of course. I can understand. As a parent, I can understand totally. But I, t I also relate to the curiosity of wanting to know how it works. Yeah. I was like, there is no way you have 16 sounds and strobing lights. And, you know, there's not some complicated tech in there. So I, I know from that example, and there's many others like it in my uh, life journey, where I would really be more curious about how things worked, which would involve breaking them or opening them, just so I could understand how that works and then put it back together and walk away with the knowledge of something totally different. I think that even in this dance to diagnosis story where being able to break the tech apart and see what is usable in a different context it's something that I've definitely carried. And even with, for example, in, in 2016, when I made the artificially intelligent football commentator whose decision tree I extracted and then used in a predictive model for Africa's next refugee crisis, for example, and then used that in a much more meaningful way in different contexts. What do you do when you're confronted with something that you can't understand? Because, you know, lots of people will just walk away at that point saying, well, I don't understand how this works. So what, what are your tactics? What is your psychology at that point when you're faced with wires and buttons and circuit boards and whatever it is that you're looking at? I think for me, being a predominantly visual person, my one trick to everything is to just look for patterns and I look for either recurring motifs or even with that broken toy it's tracing which wires go where and what probably does what based on the linear relationship between this component and that one so and it ties perfectly to the predictive model that are prototyped for Africa's next refugee crisis because when I looked at that data I wasn't looking at it as a data scientist or someone who had spent years working in that field I was literally looking as a visual person identifying patterns that matched massive population displacements in Syria and how that correlated with Rwanda for example in the genocide that occurred there and thinking about it in a very pedestrian sense but also you know that being 
I guess, a superpower in a way, because just being able to match it in that way has much higher transferability than being super knowledgeable in this very specific field and not being able to apply that anywhere else. What were the patterns that you were looking at in that, in the refugee crisis example? Were you looking at changes in population data and what did that turn into? So the patterns I was looking at there were what factors existed right before or as a possible signifier of population displacement in different areas. So I went to a repository of publicly available data, it's the World Bank, and they had indicators, for example, of CO2 levels over time in by country. And I could compare, for example, just before the Syrian crisis, there was a massive dip in CO2 levels, which corresponded with Rwanda as well. And what that told me was, you know, there's probably a a reduction in people going to workplaces, a reduction in cars on the roads, for example. So how do we set up triggers within this specific context to look at sudden dips in CO2 emissions in countries where we have also these other factors that we're listening out for and how this might indicate that there is an imminent conflict that will result in the displacement of people. So a dip in CO2 in Syria correlated to a, a dip in CO2 at the same time in Rwanda? In Rwanda, um, in, not necessarily at the same time, but at the same point just before a massive displacement in population. Oh, okay. So you were looking at historical data. You yes. knew there'd been kind of migration at a particular time. Exactly. And you looked at... So how did you know those things were correlated and not just, you know, th- there was not some other factor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my thing was really try and collect as much evidence-based proof, um, really looking at conclusive um, evidence based on the data that I have access to, and basically match these same patterns to different instances. So the CO2 emissions thing was something that I found, I think it was in Rwanda first, and then I looked at another instance of population displacement and I cross-checked if that was prevalent there as well. And then I checked another instance as well. So it was more, I noticed this thing that kind of relates to this event I'm watching out for. And then I see if there's another instance of it in a totally different geographic region, which might have similar conditions as well. It reminds me of, I don't know if you know, a guy called Richard Florida, who studies cities and kind of super cities he's based in toronto i think yeah and he's looked at satellite data in particular the light emitted from urban areas and basically the more light the more economic activity so it's a proxy so instead of co2 he's using light as a measure of economic activity exactly and then correlating that with other data i just thought that was kind of fascinating merging of data sets it definitely is and i've I've given a talk about this kind of approach to like unconventional data indicators you know like using that as a proxy for example that's been the winning approach to innovations in Africa that require data that might not always be present. You know, it's how do you find a proxy indicator for like economic activity? You can use, uh, for like you just stated, satellite imagery that 
shows you how many lights are on in the specific area during this period. How does that data then take you to, what was it, a football commentator app? So the football commentator was, so that was the genesis of it. That was something that I did in the agency I worked for. As an idea, I pitched for our main client, Heineken, who were also the main sponsor of the UEFA Champions League. And the idea with that was to pull all the tweets that football fans would put out during football matches and analyze their reactions to certain moments in the game and then build a bot that can listen out for these kinds of conversations happening in real time and respond to them. So the responses of the bot were pre-written, but its ability to listen into these conversations and know exactly what's happening in a game just by basically listening in on the tweets that people are putting out. I, I wrote the actual program just to kind of illustrate the lack of believability of you know the stuff that I would pitch like people were like there's no way this can be done and I was like okay cool I'll build it and show you that it can be done and it was pretty successful and the next year Heineken launched an AI enabled campaign that was informed by what we'd done in South Africa I, I think I might have seen that. Yeah, I didn't realize that was you. That's that's brilliant. So the thing with innovations in the advertising space is that they're very transient and just limited to a um, campaign period. And outside of that campaign, no one cares about the tech anymore. It's not a very sustainable approach to the building out of things. Everything's just once off and that's it. Just betting it all on winning the Grand Prix at Cannes, but if it doesn't, or even if it does, you know, you just toss it to the wayside and work on the next thing. And coming from a place where, yeah, you wouldn't just make the most out of whatever resource you could find, which is in Zimbabwe, it just didn't sit well with my spirit. to work in a place where we could build something as incredible as this bot and then once the campaign's done we're on to the next thing and I tried to find a way to reuse something within the context of this bot and you know it's a very specific use case because it's built for football fans who interact on Twitter, which is its own behavioral subset. So the natural language processing part was not something that I could transfer easily to another use. But the decision tree, however, which informed how a specific set of conditions will result in the bot responding in a particular way, that was the thing that I could move somewhere else. And I took this decision tree element of it and I used it to basically build a way to predict Africa's next refugee crisis because as an economic migrant myself, I knew that there would be some things that we could identify beforehand that would either allow the recipient countries to prepare or the countries that were facing this exit to either mitigate the conditions that would lead to it. So working within the displacement space was a personal thing for me. It wasn't really tied to the transferability of the tech, but it was more, how can I really amplify this one thing that was built for, you know, a beer brand, specifically for a 90-minute period, and just give it this life 
beyond that can contribute to the improvements of lives of people who are internally and externally displaced for a period longer than that. It sounds brilliant. So how did that work, the the next application? So I, I basically took the decision logic for if the tweet sentiment matches this, the bot needs to tweet this out to whoever tweeted that. I took that and I refactored it to if the CO2 emissions are progressing in this way and this other parameters progressing in this way, this will then mean there's a likelihood or there's a low likelihood of displacement happening in this area. Its ability to have worked in this completely different space while still partially informing the, the, the premise of the idea, you know, how do we look at different data sets and still use this way to decide outcomes in a way that hasn't been done before. That was something that I appreciated the tech for being able to do. It's a very personal thing for me, and that was really an experiment to really test out the full-on dexterity of limited-time innovations in a much more scalable, sustainable way outside of the initial context. So just so I understand, you were taking social media data, Twitter data specifically, and combining it with other data sets, including things like reduction in CO2, to make to predict migration or imminent migration that might occur. Who was the audience for that uh, service or that product? Well, initially the audience was just myself, to be honest. I just <laughs> well, that's a good place to start. <laughs> I just approached the idea with the goal of doing something that hadn't been done before, but also for people who wouldn't have this done for them. So with the predictive analytics project, the idea initially was to take the World Bank data, but then the, the real-time like tweet information now it's just a secondary layer which would affect the, the baseline prediction. So I kind of swapped it around. And this project, while it was something that I did personally, it caught the attention of the, the UN Refugee Agency. And they reached out to me to help them work on something that they'd been building in a similar space. And yeah, it's been a cool journey with them. We started our relationship around 2017 and I still consult with them to this day. I love it. It's a great example of what some people call collective intelligence, combining different data sets, some of it human generated, some of it machine generated to sort of extract new insight about, yeah, whatever, in this case, migration, but certainly more useful than just a 90 minute game of football. I love how those things, those ideas can migrate as well as people from one area to another. So is it okay to move on to the the story where we started? Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. To hear a bit more about how some of that thinking took you to this dance to diagnosis. Most uh, definitely. So I left the world of advertising in 2016 and eventually moved to the Netherlands 
where I started to explore what a digital agency for the future would look like, given my experience in chasing these leading edge technologies and trying to make use cases for them. I decided to start Triple Black Agency, that's www.triple.black. And the idea was to create this boutique approach to creating the kinds of innovations that rely on tech not many people can understand right now. So our proposition was like working with AI could be as simple as working with WordPress if you work with the right people. So we decided to spend our first year just experimenting with tech and just creating our own apps and and putting our own ideas out there just to demonstrate the capabilities of our team. And one of the things that we built was this app that harnessed data from the South African police service to give runners, joggers, walkers, real-time information on the crime profile of areas that they moved in. And that was basically our flagship product for that year. And in December, we decided to tackle something a little more informal and accessible. Having lived in South Africa for half a a decade and, and even, you know, growing up in Zimbabwe, we collectively treat December as this 31 day long festive uh, period. I can speak confidently and say from December 1st, it, it's, it's basically one long party. It's, it's actually called December with a, a Z or Z and an A at the end. Like it, it's a whole mood. And our idea was to create something that used very new tech that would basically enhance everyone's December experience. And at the time, this South African house music subgenre known as GOM, which is spelled G-Q-O-M, had really taken off. And the dance that accompanied it um, was this dance move called the Vosho, which is not really complex to perform. But what it is really taxing on is the body because it, it requires near superhuman thigh strength and, you know, like very youthful knees. So the idea was to find a way to allow people to rate each other's dance move. You would have someone perform the voice show because a good voice show is identifiable. And because of that, it's clear that you can parameterize it. If you know what a good one is, you know what a bad one is. And at the same time, when we were throwing this idea around, there was a version of Google's TensorFlow framework, which is their public-facing machine learning platform, they released uh, this new tech called Pose Estimation. And this basically allowed you to map points of the body in real time without any external sensors, or like sometimes you can use like visual codes, for example, on elbows and and shoulders. This allows you to do real-time pose estimation on a camera feed in a browser. So I've just described like two very important things, the the lack of a need for you to have any sensors at all. So it can perform pose estimation on anyone anywhere. 
and two it can perform this in a browser so there's no need for any app downloads or setup by literally clicking a link and giving access to a camera you could immediately get started on analyzing movement over time and that was a game changer i remember like xbox and microsoft did that a few with years Kinect, ago but yeah with connect and that at the time was sort of consumer tech taking very sophisticated technology and bringing it into the home so this was the the next generation of that is that exactly. right exactly 100 percent. and and to do so as well because connect required like infrared cameras and other sensors as well for depth assessment to map these points on your body whereas this literally just used your phone camera and let machine learning do this estimation of the different points of your body so it wasn't even the next step it was just leaps ahead of what connect could do with less than half the tech and based on these conditions we decided to build a web app that would allow people to rate the Vosho dance move and this was something that we envisioned people would use when they're out partying or something and we built it and launched it and i think that was probably our most successful experiment and what was successful for us was the fact that this was accessed by people on a spectrum of device types and this included devices like super low end entry-level smartphones that cost like up to 15 pounds very very affordable smartphones yeah. and this is basically people using fresh out the lab machine learning technology to rate a dance move in a very you know colloquial setting without you know really investing in what is the technology and to be able to build something that is so uh, balanced on the bleeding edge of tech and have people not worry about the technology at all and just want to use it within the social context for which it was created, that was a massive win for us. As you probably gathered, I, of course, would not just be happy with just a, a standalone dance app and then move on to the next thing. I, I realized that there would probably be a better opportunity to use the insights we'd gathered from our initial pilot and use that in a much more meaningful way to impact people beyond just the approachability of tech and maybe potentially help save lives or at least improve them. So this is where you, you thought of a medical application for this fun app that you developed. Yeah. Is that right? You, you're completely right. So this used the exact same technology. There wasn't really much refactoring involved. Our thinking was there has to be some other application of posture and movement measuring over time, which would be more beneficial than analyzing a dance move. And I did research to look at medical use cases for the assessments of movement and body position. And I found out that Parkinson's disease diagnosis relies partially on symptomatic observation over time of parameters such as posture and gait and the, the tilt of someone's upper body, for example, which when we look back at the formula we built for 
the virtual dance app rating platform, we realized that there was, you know, almost a one-to-one transferability of the way we measured how quickly someone dipped and how low they dipped relative to their height and also how quickly they came up and how this would transfer to the tilt of a patient's abdomen as they walked as well as their gait, how far their feet moving apart relative to how tall they are. We collected lots of research videos and examples of Parkinson's gait and posture and we built a prototype initially which was able to you know give you a course analysis of a patient's posture over time and a couple of months later we finished developing our fully fledged apps on Android and iOS which today help medical practitioners measure the changes in a patient's posture and gait and as well as the severity of their hand tremors over multiple assessments over time. Wow, I love the steps you just talked us through from getting from the one application to the other and it feels incredibly natural but before you describe this story these things seem a million miles away a dance app and a Parkinson's diagnosis and I love that kind of unexpected connection that you've made there that's really beautiful thank you and so you've rolled this out as a product so this is no longer just a prototype that you've done to showcase your talents this is actually a product that you've launched and exists in the world and it exists in the world and it's free to download and use and it doesn't collect any personal information it's it's just used as a tool to to measure for transcription elsewhere and it, it uses very low data as well and it was built in collaboration with a geriatric nursing home in Zimbabwe in a small town called Bulawayo, which is where I grew up. And that approach to innovation for us was pretty important because we really wanted to build something that could be used in places that wouldn't have access to electricity at all times or might have poor internet connections. And because it's built with that community first, with something that can be used elsewhere in the world pretty easily without the need to be re-engineered to make sure that it works in those contexts. And uh, you can check it out uh, on uh, your favorite um, app store. It's called <laughs> Patana AI. That's P-A-T-A-N-A AI. And it's it's named after the village my mother was born in. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. It's a, it's a fantastic story. And thank you for sharing it yeah my mind immediately goes to whether this type of technology if it was embedded in something like cctv you could track population level health outcomes which has its own issues around surveillance and privacy. yeah exactly um, <laughs> but uh, but absolutely fascinating and i really love the fact that it's originated and, and works on a 10, 15 pound smartphone as well. I think I told you when we last spoke about a new project that we're involved with is about trying to find examples like exactly this one that you've told for a new project that we're doing between South Africa and the UK at the moment. Yes. Um, called Scaling Out for Impact, which is exactly these kinds of innovations that come from the most unexpected sources and, and scaling them together. So thank you for, for sharing that story. That's cool. uh, That's really 
Brilliant. I'm really keen to learn just a little bit more in the time that we have left about how you work with other people, with your, I guess, colleagues and conspirators at Triple Black. Just talk to me a bit about how you collaborate and what, what works for you and maybe what doesn't work for you as well, because all of these problems and applications that you're working on require expertise and creativity and technology from presumably lots of different places. Uh, I guess before I started the agency, I would always have to be, you know, the copywriter, the UX designer, the back and front end developer, the marketing strategist, the community manager. You do everything. <laughs> yeah. And while that definitely has its, its benefits, especially if you're bootstrapped and, and, and you know, trying to get something out in, in the shortest amount of time, it, it can, of course, you know, lead to, to, to biases that might, well, not even might, that will definitely affect, you know, the integrity of a product that you're working on. And I, I found a way to work with people that still allows for things to be built in in the quick way that I'm accustomed to them being built. Quick in that I'm not intimidated by technology or, or you know, what might seem like grand ideas. And I work with my main collaborator, awesome guy based in Cape Town. His name is Robert Scott. And we, we've built almost everything together. And the approach that's working for me is, you know, still being the single source of truth but outsourcing things that I know are definitely not within my domain to people who understand that. So even with the Patana AI project, we worked very closely with the team from Google Brain to build out a very new version of their technology. And they were basically on call for any bugs that we encountered on our journey to producing this. Doing my research in Zimbabwe, for example, as a person who, of course, has no medical expertise or knowledge in that domain, to create something that has to work in, in that space would mean I, I definitely would have to have collaborated with someone who understands that. So working with the geriatric nursing home in Zimbabwe was a way to not necessarily outsource, but to collaborate with an entity that definitely understands and can provide a much more meaningful contribution to the project. But I, I do try to be the single source of truth for the purposes of accountability, as well as to ensure that we arrive at the points that we need to arrive at, at the time that we need to. And a lot of the time it involves some hand-holding because we do approach very intimidating topics at times like pose estimation for parkinson's disease if you pitch that to your average developer you you might not <laughs> get a response back or if you do it'll have a couple of zeros on it in the quotation but really understanding the tech for me and, and being able to break it down into consumable chunks for the people that i collaborate with has been an approach that I have found to be hyper rewarding for all parties involved and it's led to some amazing innovations for myself and the, and, and the team and I'm not like a lone cowboy or this like maverick or anything. I, I think I'm really lucky to not be intimidated by concepts such as machine learning and, and, and AI and whatever variant and being able to articulate that to the people I work with 
has proven to be successful. I love the sort of empathic, intuitive nature with which you kind of humanize what can be very inhuman technology or, or look and feel very inhuman. Yeah. And the, yeah, there is something about fear and intimidation, which I think, you know, we all experience to varying degrees, I think, when faced with something new and difficult and complex. But That's true. But it's, yeah, it's inspiring to hear your, your story about how you've experimented right from the age of five or whenever it was you got that gun. I hope yeah. your mother <laughs> forgave you eventually. Um, no, no, she did. She did. Yeah, I didn't um, actually, yeah, I never got punished for that, by the way, which was, yeah, I think it was, I think she knew I might be onto something at that point. Thank you, Babusi. I really like the fact that his mum had the foresight to recognise that he was onto something, even though he destroyed his precious new toy, and how he's taken that curiosity and freedom to deconstruct and translate ideas and technologies across different fields in a very humane way. I hope you enjoyed our conversation, and if you want to find out more about Babusi and some of the things we talked about, then please visit www.triple.black. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community that seeks to solve hard problems that fall between the cracks of existing organizations, places, and institutions. Our community and this podcast is supported by our patrons, and so I'd particularly like to thank our latest community members, Liz O'Driscoll, Richard Johansson, Marcus Yanel, Sean Cunningham, Emily Stewart, Robin Taylor, Francesco Velasco, Rachel Jones, Emma Skipper, Mariam Atokarami, Maxim Dedushkov, and Nitsam Hermon. Thanks again to all of you for your support and participation. To find out more about Liminal, or to join the community, please visit www.weareliminal.co. Before we go, please can I ask that you share this podcast with others who you think might like it, and thanks again for listening. Until next time, like Babusi, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.